Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Um, also check out our YouTube channel. If you're watching from there and have not subscribed yet, help us get to a thousand subscribers by hitting the subscribe button. And also you can hit the bell to be notified of any new videos um, that come out. We also started selling uh, t-shirts again. Um, so you can, there should be a link in the description of this video um, and also uh, a link on our, both our Twitter page and um, Facebook pages where you can find uh, the site or the link to the Custom Inc. Uh, site to be able to purchase uh, the particular Baptist Podcast t-shirts. And those are only out for a limited time. Um, I, I think it's two weeks um, and I posted those maybe a few days ago. So uh, be sure to pick one up. Um, and also if you're listening on Apple podcasts, uh, be sure to leave us a review, a five-star review that can really help us out a lot. And if you really like the show, um, please leave us a five-star review that can be very helpful. But with that, we're going to dive into our topic today. So we're starting a new series. Actually, we just finished our series through first Clement, uh, that I think was a very beneficial study, um, a, a long study, but I think very helpful. Um, and this actually might be a longer, will be a longer study uh, than what we did through First Clement, but I think it's going to be profitable. We're going to be talking about the law of God and the Ten Commandments and doing so in light of Dennis Prager, Dennis Prager's series on the Ten Commandments. He has an introduction, then he goes through each one, and we're going to try and do so over time. Might not be sequential, chronological, or sequential in terms of every week. Um, there might be breaks in between, but we'll see. Um, but it's an at least it'll be an ongoing series that we'll uh, that we'll plan to go through. Um, but with uh, with Dennis Prager, uh, who is he? He is a pretty big political figure among conservatives. Um, he has a uh, a site called Prager University or or an organization called Prager U, Prager University. Um, he has strong political ties. He was appointed by George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. He's a fellow at Columbia University and author of books, including one related to our topic today, The Ten Commandments, Still the Best Moral Code. And he's pretty popular among conservatives. And actually, uh, PragerU puts out some really good um, political videos. Not saying that everything they put out is necessarily good, but I think that they um, some of the economical stuff that they put out, I think, has been really going to helpful and they have nice graphics and things that kind of bring together um, what they're talking about. Um, so I think they, they put out some really good stuff. Um, but Dennis Prager is, he is a Jew. He, he holds it uh, to Judaism and he's written quite a bit on the subject. Um, and he has some stuff. I, I just want to read some quotes of what he has to give an idea of kind of where he's coming from with Judaism we're not going to dive into all of what he believes in Judaism, but I think there might be some things that are helpful as we uh, go through this. Um, and this is from Dennis. This first quote is from DennisPrager.com titled an article. What is Judaism? He says, God's primary demand is that people be good. Therefore, God cares more about how we act toward one another than how we act toward him. Just as we humans care more about how our children treat one another than how they treat us. Therefore, right behavior matters more than intentions and even more than faith. And any good Reformed Christian is going to immediately be screaming and jumping up and down when they hear that. Um, there's a lot of problems with that statement, but 
that actually will tie into our discussion today about the law. Um, and then from the same articles, I think it was just posted somewhere else. Uh, he says, the most important distinction among human beings is not their race, religion, nationality, class, or sex. It is their behavior. In the words of Viktor Frankl, there are only two races, the decent and the indecent. So there's a very large economical or uh, ecumenical understanding of, of, you know, especially as it relates to religion. Um, he doesn't see distinction as, as really being important. Um in terms of that, we could agree on other things like maybe with race or class or sex, but, you know, religious distinction is important. Uh, and then finally, he says, any non-Jew is welcome to embrace Judaism and become a member of the Jewish people, but no one needs to become a Jew to be saved. So you can see that ecumenical understanding of of his faith. It's really just a it seems to be very much just a moral guideline um, for society. Uh, as opposed to really having a a distinctive grounding in his in his um, religion, did you want to add anything, Sean? Yeah, I, I did want to point out that while Dennis Prager is politically conservative, theologically he's actually not that conservative. As Dan pointed mm. out, you know he's very uh, ecumenical, but also he holds beliefs that, for example, there there's nothing wrong with gay marriage, which would not be in mm. um, lowercase o orthodox jewish belief um so he's a little bit uh on the theologically liberal side um even within judaism uh and we'll 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 definitely see that a little bit in the uh in the series but um goes to show that just because someone is a popular conservative uh commentator doesn't mean that we should uh, take what they have to say on the uh, bible yeah exactly And, and we see that now with their um, I guess you could call sister program, the organization Daily Wire. You know, it seems to be this acceptance of gay marriage or homosexuality while there's a rejection of this, you know, like transgenderism and pronouns and all this stuff. Uh, yeah. seems very inconsistent. Um, I don't oh. know, like Ben Shapiro, I don't know where he would personally stand, but there seems to be this surgence in conservative media or in conservative circles. Hey, certain pagan lifestyles are okay. Um, mm-hmm. And then we're going to pick and choose the ones that we don't like and then keep the ones we do think are acceptable. Yeah. It's while, funny while saying we're, we're, you know, we're morally conservative or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because Ben Shapiro is more theologically conservative. He is a capital o Orthodox Jew. The, 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 the name of the type of Jew he is, is he's an Orthodox Jew. Um, but at the same time, we do sort of see this, this downplaying of uh, homosexuality and gay marriage in light of the new, the new cultural fight, which is over transgenderism. And, uh, I, I like to, I like to talk about the slippery slope and how, um, some modern conservatives seem to want to go just halfway back up the slippery slope. It's like, Oh, you know, like we're, we're down here near the bottom of the slippery slope and it's terrible here. Wasn't it great? You know, when we were like just halfway up the slippery slope and, um, you know, like, like, so let's gay marriage is fine, but let's do this, uh, this uh let's not do this transgender stuff this is bad um when really you need a you need honestly you need to ground your morality in god and how he created the universe and ignoring one and just attacking the other is ultimately um contradictory and self-defeating yeah i think it shows that how godless conservatism tends to be yeah 
you know, it, there's a there's a lot of things they get right, but because they're not ultimately grounded in God, they tend to just be a mishmash of all kinds of stuff. But um, and and that's kind of what we see here with Prager too, and we'll see this as he talks about the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> now this video will go through. Uh, it's about five minutes. We'll try to go through the whole thing. But there does seem to be this um, this understanding of the law of God as just a moral guideline for society and really doesn't seem to have much of an emphasis on the spiritual aspect of the law. It's just this is the moral guidepost for society. This is what the ideal standard morally for society should be. You want an ideal society? Go see the Ten Commandments. Um, and so that there seems to be this overemphasis on the social benefits of the law and a neglect or largely minimizing the spiritual aspects um, of the law. And as I was thinking through this in preparation, um, I think there you can draw some similarities between um, this kind of understanding of the law of God and what you would see like a Reconstructionist theonomist understand of the law of God. It's a large, the law of the emphasis of the law of God seems to be um, this shaping of society around God's law. The spiritual aspect is is there, but it's not in the forefront where it should be. It's here's how we get society in a Christian mindset or in a, you know, in a, in a, I guess the ideal Christian state using the law of God. It's primarily a moral guideline for how we should live. Although they would come at it from different places, Prager and, and Reconstructionists would likely come at it from different places. There seems to be parallels in that way. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Although I will at least say for Theonomous Brothers, they would recognize the other two uses of the law and yeah. uh, the spiritual aspect. Whereas I, having watched, I've watched the first two videos now, and I, I watched a lot of the series uh, a long time ago when it came out. But um, anyway, having rewatched some of it, uh, I got no sense that Prager was aware of the spiritual aspect of the uh, the law, the use of the, the law in a spiritual aspect whatsoever. So. Mm. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and dive in and we'll just uh, pause as we feel we can comment. And Sean, just tell me, you know, if you want to say something, just tell me to stop it. Sounds good. Um, And we'll go ahead and dive in. No document in world history so changed the world for the better, as did the Ten Commandments. Western civilization, the civilization that developed universal human rights, created women's equality, and ended slavery, created parliamentary democracy, among other unique achievements, would not have developed without them. As you will see when each of the Ten Commandments is explained, these commandments are as relevant today as when they were given over 3,000 years ago. In fact, they're so relevant that the Ten Commandments are all that is necessary to make a good world a world free of tyranny and cruelty. Imagine for a moment a world in which there was no murder or theft. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comment real quick on that. Um, so he says that the Ten Commandments are all that is needed for a world to be free of tyranny, cruelty, etc., and I guess the question is, from a Christian perspective, or what we see in Scripture when we use what's called the analogy of faith, we look at Scripture with other Scriptures in mind, is that really the full picture of what we're seeing? I would say that's only part of the, of the, uh, of the equation. 
yes, if you're looking at what is the standard for what is morally acceptable, what will uh, what has God prescribed ideally for society, it would be God's law, ultimately. But how that is fleshed out, I think, is very different, right? And there's all, and again, we just talked about Prager not utilizing the spiritual aspects of the law, or at least largely minimizing them. He's not going to see the nuances that we would see as those who have the New Testament and are looking back using that hermeneutic of the revelation that was in Christ and with the apostles and the writers of the New Testament and seeing those nuances that are uh, that are in the law. Um, our, our own confession, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19, 1, it says, God gave to Adam a law of natural, uh, of, I'm sorry, Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to in personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. And then paragraph two says, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty um, to man. So we have an obligation to man, right, in the second table of the law. So in that sense, we would say, yes, it's all that is needed to be able to do what is pleasing to God as he has prescribed for humans to act. That is the ultimate standard. But the law also is meant to push us to Christ, right? It reveals sin. It tells us what our need is. It's not merely a moral code. Um, and this is where I think some of the problems start to come out with his understanding of the law. Uh, we see Galatians 3, 24 through 25. says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law is pointing us to Jesus Christ um, and showing us our failures. And then it governs how we live after we're justified, right? It's not just merely a, a guidepost for society, and we just got to follow that, and that's merely all that it's about. Um, but the law is written on our hearts. We've already uh, seen that in our confession. That's from Romans 2. It points us to Christ, shows us um, our sin. But if we're going to keep the law, then we have to keep it perfectly, or there's going to be a curse. That's another reason why we can't just throw the law out there and say to the world, hey, keep the law and you'll be fine. Um, no, you have to keep all of it or you're cursed. Um, and just merely giving them a moral guidepost is not going to, um, you know, solve the problem of what happens if I disobey the law. Um, so there's there's that nuance that has to be uh, addressed. Um, so the primary function of the law that we find in Scripture is in, primarily in a spiritual way. And this is how Paul applies it. This is how we see the New Testament applying it. And there are aspects of it, like the second table of the law should be enforced by governing authorities, regardless of whether they're Christians or not. We see uh, this in Romans 13, um, that the, the rule of government is to punish the evildoers and to reward the good, regardless of, of who they are, spiritually speaking. Um, but then the first table of the law is not to be enforced by the governing authorities. That's where the keys of the kingdom come in. Um, so again, nuances that aren't uh, taken care of. So, and, and Prager doesn't seem to make that distinction between the first and second table of the law just by merely saying that 
the the law is you know all that we need to have a a, a just society um it's void of any kind of spiritual aspect that would be needed to uh, really complete that uh, that picture there Sean, anything you want to add yeah definitely um as we, we've just seen as we're going to see because he continues along this train of thought for a little bit um in in prayer's mind it seems that just having the law be there would be sufficient to have a, a just society yeah the issue is having the law doesn't mean you can keep it the law itself doesn't give you the power to keep it um to quote from romans here uh starting at verse uh, uh starting chapter 8 verse 2 for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So the law doesn't have the power to save us from sin. Christ does, but the law doesn't have the power to save us from sin. Um, that's both from the, the punishment due to sin and from sin's power over us. Um, and that's why it doesn't matter that um, a society, in, in some sense, it doesn't matter that a society would recognize the Ten Commandments as valid because it, if they don't keep it, what, is, what does it matter? Um, so that's, that's a little bit of a flaw there in uh, Prager's thinking that, well, if a society upholds the law in the sense of we, we all recognize this is as good and valid. Um, we would have a just society. No, because that doesn't mean that people are just going to keep it. You can recognize, as I think he makes this point later on, you can recognize that a, a law is correct and then not keep it yourself. Um, so that's definitely an, a, an important aspect that I think is going to be missed. And then you basically alluded to it um, in your talk, Dan, but I just want to um, go through the three uses mm -hmm. of the law explicitly that we would recognize. Yep. Um, the first use of the law is to show us our sin and thus show us a need for a savior. Um, and I'll quote Romans 3.20 in that regard. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shows us our sinfulness and then uh, in our sinfulness, we recognize, okay, well, I need something to take away my sin. And that needs to point us to Christ and the gospel that um, we would uh, have that sin taken away. Then we have the second use of the law, um, which, um, which, which is more in line with Prager's thinking, and that's to restrain evil. The law does restrain evil, although not completely, in the sense that people are, if they recognize the law, are less likely to commit that evil, although it doesn't stop them. Uh, permanently but it does at least restrain some evil and then uh the third use of the law is to show believers how they should live for god um in light of us now recognizing our sin uh repenting coming to christ we can now look at the law as a guideline for how we should live to honor our god so those are the three valid uses of the law that we would recognize yep it's yeah and that's again that nuance all those nuances are are not talked about here he really like you said he's focusing on the second table of the law the restraining of evil and how we treat our neighbor um i mean and we even saw that early on with that quote i read um mm -hmm. where he said um god cares more about how we act toward one another than how we act toward him 
Um, and then he goes on, right behavior matters more than intentions and even more than faith. Um, so the second table is really the emphasis. And and he would have to if he's going to be consistent because he doesn't have a way to deal with any kind of sin problem, right? In a in a transcendental sense, he's he doesn't have a way to deal with in salvation or anything like that. His uh, his soteriology is based on works. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. You know, if you're a good person, you're good outweighs the bad kind of thing. And then you just kind of, you know, you get into heaven or whatever it is. Um, they don't have a way to properly deal with those things. So focusing on the second table seems to be the logical conclusion of where they're, they're coming from. There's no real spiritual need um, in, in terms of keeping the law. Our primary understanding is that it, it's how we treat our neighbors, um, but we're not going to talk about how we actually deal with sin in a transcendental sense as it relates to God. Um, but yeah. All right. We'll keep pressing on here. In such a world, there would be no need for armies or police or weapons. Men and women and children could walk anywhere at any time of day or night without any fear of being killed or robbed. Imagine further a world in which no one coveted what belonged to their neighbor a world in which children honored their mother and father and the family unit thrived, a world in which people obeyed the injunction not to lie. The recipe for a good world is all there in these 10 sublime commandments. But there is a catch. The 10 commandments are predicated on the belief that they were given by an authority higher than any man, any king, or any government. That's why the sentence preceding the Ten Commandments asserts the following. God spoke all these words. You see, if the Ten Commandments, as great as they are, were given... Yeah. So, just to comment briefly, we very much agree with that. Yep. The issue is I, he's going to take it in a direction that we, we don't necessarily agree with, but we absolutely agree with that. There is there is a, a catch, so to speak, that um, these are all predicated on a transcendental God who is all-knowing and um, is righteous in of himself. So when he gives he, when he gives this righteous law, we can know that it's righteous. Um, when yes. man tries to come up with his own law, well, man is fallible. Man's reasoning is is um, it's corrupted by the fall. Uh, so how do how could we ever know if man reasoned correctly to um, how how we should live morally when we when our reasoning is fallible? But if we have a perfect God that gives us the law, um, we can rest in the fact that that is is perfect. So. Um, we'll, we'll see how he, he goes into this, but just wanted to bring that out. Yeah. And this, I, I think is about as far as he gets as it relates to any spiritual relation to the law. Yeah. They come from God, but you know, their purpose is really just for society and that's it. Um, at, at least in this video given by any human authority, then any person could say, who is this man, Moses, who is this King or queen? Who is this government to tell me how I should behave? Okay, so why is God indispensable to the Ten Commandments? Because, to put it as directly as possible, if it isn't God who declares murder wrong, murder isn't 
wrong. Now, uh, I I would say we agree with this as far as it goes, right? If God declares something to be evil, it's evil because God said it is. Um, and he's basically presenting the the moral argument that you would find, I think, in, in like evidentialist apologetics, um, you know, that I don't think he's doing trying to create an apologetic argument here, but it's it's a similar argument, I think. You know, there, there has to be a supreme lawgiver um, and that we as human beings cannot say that something is really wrong on our own authority because that would just make it relative because I'm not Mm -hmm. any more of an authority inherently than Sean is and vice versa. So I can't say that something is absolutely wrong on my own authority. There has to be someone greater that I'm appealing to that says that this is specifically wrong um, in an ultimate sense when we're talking about these types of topics. So he, I think that's where he's coming from here. Um, But in terms of, you know, when God says that something is wrong, therefore it's wrong. Yes, I think we can say we agree with that. Although I think that, again, this is where you have to have a spiritual understanding of the law, not just merely um, a moral understanding. Um, It's wrong, not only because God said it, but because it's grounded in his perfect nature. It's a the laws is a reflection of who God is, right? Um, We see in first Peter one, 14 through 16, he says, as Peter says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And this is a direct callback to the Torah, um, which Prager would say he would he holds to. God is calling his people to be holy and obey him because God himself is holy. It's his very nature to be perfect. It's his very nature to be righteous is his very nature to be holy. And that's really why murder is wrong. That's why uh, we can't conceive of anything else otherwise. You know, to say that murder would be correct, murder murder would be righteous is, you know, we repulse at that. But that's because it's grounded, ultimately it's because it's grounded in who God's unchangeable nature that he cannot, um, he cannot be anything else than he is. He is um, perfectly righteous. And this is, to not murder a fellow image bearer of God is a reflection of his perfect um, character. Uh, John Gill on this passage of verse Peter, he says an argument the apostle knew must have weight with these persons who were chiefly Jews scattered abroad among the Gentiles and had a value for the scriptures of truth. And therefore as the argument for holiness of life from the nature and perfections of God is strong. So it's it's grounded in who God is and his very nature. Um, so yes, God says murder is wrong. That's fine as far as it goes, but it there's a step farther back that we have to go in understanding why that's so. Why why can't we say that um, murdering someone would be right in any circumstance? Well, it's because the command not to murder is grounded in God's perfect, unchanging uh, nature. Anything to add, Sean? Um, I guess just that also it's grounded in God's creation um, in some sense uh, because of the way God has created things that humans are made in the image of God and therefore are inherently valuable. Um, It is wrong to take take the life of someone unjustly, which is what murder is. Um, Obviously, we would recognize that there are valid categories of killing, um, but murder specifically is the unlawful taking of someone's life. 
And um, that's that's grounded in both God himself, that God is not a murderer, and the way God created. Um, and for worldviews that would posit some other reason, they have to deal with the idea of, well, man is inherently valuable, that's why it's wrong to murder. And then you have to ask the question, well, how do you know that man is inherently valuable? Where did that come from? If it's just, well, I think man is inherently valuable, okay, well, the next person might not think so, and that's why they're a murderer. Um, and then you fall into the trap of relativism again. Yep, exactly right. Yes, this strikes many people today as incomprehensible, even absurd. Many of you are thinking, is this guy saying you can't be a good person if you don't believe in God? Let me respond as clearly as possible. I am not saying that. Of course there are good people who don't believe in God, just as there are bad people who do. And many of you are also thinking, I believe... So, that that statement, there are good people that don't believe in God, are you, are you saying that there are relatively good people that don't believe in God compared to other uh, people that do believe in God? In a relative sense, maybe. Um, I could argue, I could say that, um, that, uh, on the day of judgment, those that were professed to be believers in God and teachers and, um, led people astray or were hypocrites will, um, will have a stricter judgment than those that never profess at all. That's true. But in apps, in an absolute sense, no, um, no, uh, what you do need God to be right. And this is going to get into a little bit of a flaw in his thinking that, all the Ten Commandments are really about personal interactions and not about God himself. Uh, it's, a, it's impossible to be good without doing things for the glory of God. In order for something to be good, it needs to be done for the right reasons. For the millionaire that gives millions of dollars to charity, everybody looks at that, oh, that's that's such a good thing. Thank you. And then when it comes out that uh, the reason why he was doing that was because he was bribing the charity to let his son uh, be a member, or he was doing something up otherwise corrupt with the charity, all of a sudden that seemingly good deed becomes a bad deed because it's revealed what the person's motivations were. And we as Christians, having studied the Bible, uh, we see that God, uh, the whole reason, the reason you should do anything good is um, predicated on the fact that you want to glorify the God who made you and, uh, to do it for any other reason is inherently sinful. So no, I would not say that, um, any, anyone apart from God is good. Um, and if we Christians do anything good, it's because God has, has, uh, changed us to do, uh, to, uh, do good for good sake, for his sake. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's interesting in reading um, Prager's outline of Judaism. Um, he be- he seems to believe that man, well, first of all, he does not believe that man is basically good. I thought that was interesting. Uh, he says that uh, that man is not basically good, but that Judaism's task is making good people really by means of society, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like we got to change the cultural situation and that will make people good. Um, but he does not believe that men are basically good. But he doesn't really define what good means. Like you talked about the relative goodness, you know, between, mm-hmm. you know, it might be an external relative goodness between me and you or from me to another person. 
and we might say, yeah, you know, outwardly, he's doing a good thing. You know, he's he's giving money to charity. He doesn't really make those distinctions um, in what that what that means. You know, does that mean keeping nine out of the Ten Commandments perfectly? Uh, and, you know, you can get off on the tenth one, you know, on, on coveting. You can covet once in a while. But, you know, if you keep the other nine, you're fine. There, there's there doesn't seem to be this um, robust understanding of what holiness is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know. To Sean's point, we would say that, as our confession says, works done by unre- in sixteen seven works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and to others. Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So outwardly good works done by pagan men are still considered sinful in a sense, right? Because they're not done um, with a, the right motive. They're not done from a regenerate heart. They're missing the mark, right? We're falling short of the glory of God. We're missing that mark that God um, has given us. And then, in, you know, Prager doesn't have a way... Uh, not only can he really define what good is, but he does, as we've mentioned before, he doesn't have a way to deal with it, breaking the law. What happens when you break God's law? So you confess that God has given this law. It comes from God and that he demands something from it. But what happens if we break it? You now, Paul says we're under a curse if you don't keep the whole law. Um, so how do you become say how do you become justified uh, before God, in your view, they don't have a way to do that. It's just really being a good person seems to be Prager's solution. And you don't even have to be a Jew. <laughs> you just have to be a good person. Right. And, and, and whatever that means, you know, what does it mean to be good versus bad? Where is the tipping point from being punished or, and then getting rewarded in heaven? Um, he, he doesn't define that. He may define that elsewhere, but, um, in the Judaism outline he gave, I did not see that. It just seems to be a, a religion of, of good works with no real way of dealing with the sin problem. And that's where God's law really is lorded over us. That shows us where we have sinned and uh, that we miserably fail at it. We cannot keep it. Even in our unregenerate state, we can't keep it at all. We're completely, um, all of our works are, are sinful um, and so they don't have a way to deal with that. We do. We have from Scripture a way that God can perfectly keep his law, in a sense, you know, by uh, fulfilling the requirements of the law, by Christ coming and dying for our sins and living a perfect life and keeping the law on our behalf. So God is just. He doesn't wink at sin um, in, in Prager's view. God is really winking at sin. He's just kind of Okay, you're a good person. Yeah, you may have broken my law, but I'll just, you know, I'll let you in because you're good enough. Never mind that you broke it and there's nothing there's nothing to uh, fulfill the righteous requirements of that law. Um, so it's, it's a very the system is extremely lacking. It's not a just system. Um, and this is what happens when you turn spiritual things into merely moral um, moral guidelines as it relates to the law of God. It's very dangerous stuff. Very dangerous stuff. Murder is wrong. I don't need God to tell me. Now that response is only half true. 
I have no doubt that if you're an atheist and you say that you believe murder is wrong, you believe murder is wrong. But forgive me, you do need God to tell you. We all need God to tell us. You see, even if you figured out murder is wrong on your own, without God and the Ten Commandments, how do you know it's wrong? Not believe it's wrong, I mean know it's wrong. The fact is, you can't. Because without God, right and wrong are just personal beliefs, personal opinions. I think shoplifting is okay, you don't. Unless there is a God, all morality is just opinion and belief. And virtually every atheist philosopher has acknowledged this. Another problem with the view that you don't need God to believe that murder is wrong is, a lot of people haven't shared your view. And you don't have to go back very far in history to prove this. In the 20th century, millions of people in communist societies and under Nazism killed about 100 million people. And that doesn't count a single soldier killed in war. So don't get too confident about people's ability to figure out right from wrong without a higher authority. It's all too easy to be Yeah. Yeah, so obviously there's a lot we would agree with that and a lot we mm-hmm. just um, we, we basically said earlier. Um, ah, I just lost my train of thought. Um, what was I going to say? I don't know. Did you have anything to say about that? And hopefully I'll, I'll catch that again. Um, I guess just following along your thoughts, sir. Yeah, we would agree um, that God is needed along with his law to, to show what is right. Um, and I guess, again, this is he's he's basically using the moral argument for God. Mm-hmm. Right. We need a lawgiver. You know, this is referring to God. This is, um, you know, so therefore, this is against the atheist understanding of relativism. Although atheists, we would say, borrow from that all the time and, and agree in some kind of ultimate standard um, that uh, as it relates to God's law, we, they're stealing from our worldview to to use mm-hmm. the precept uh, slogan. Is that where you were going to go with? So sort of, uh, yeah, I did remember what I wanted to bring up. Um, there's, there is an aspect missing to what he's saying though, because he's basically allowing for the fact that um, people might've reasoned to, um, to the correct morality, but they still need, they still need God. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I would say that people actually do know um the, the moral law, maybe not the application of every single aspect of it, but the core of the moral law has been written on the hearts of man, right? So that, right. that's something where we yep. have a foundational difference. So for those in history that have reasoned their way to it, it's it's either they're acknowledging something that's already true, that's written on their hearts, or that they've come up with a framework to explain what they already know to be true. And for those that don't believe like for say uh, murder is wrong, they're actually going against their conscience. And that's why Mm -hmm. they're morally culpable because there is the law. They did know that was wrong and um, they've ignored it. Yeah, that's a good point. And and Prager doesn't seem to believe that. If he's saying that you can figure out that morality is wrong, even if you could, you know, it, yeah, it's that they already know it's wrong and they're doing it anyway. And Paul says that, and this is pulling from Romans chapter two, um, that Paul is saying that our conscience excuses or accuses, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the law is written on the heart of he talks about the Gentiles. The Jews got the oracles of God, the law. Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. Um, and so we know that murder is wrong because it's written on our hearts to do so. And our conscience says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. But we do it anyways um, because we love the darkness rather than the light, as the scripture saying in John. Um, so, yeah, again, fundamental differences here. There's no uh, the spiritual state of man is not being dealt with here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it really shows uh the misunderstanding of how the law is applied when you leave out anthropology, even though he does have an anthropology, um, it doesn't come into play at least primarily when discussing the law's primary purpose. And, and it really shows a deficiency of his, um, of his religion and his view of God's law. Weighed by a government or a demagogue or an ideology or to rationalize that the wrong you're doing isn't really wrong. And even if you do figure out what is right and wrong, God is still necessary. People who know the difference between right and wrong do the wrong thing all the time. You know why? Because they can. They can because they think no one is watching. But if you recognize that God is the source of moral law, you believe that he is always watching. So I would say that there's a yes and a no to this. There is a yes in, in terms of, um, you know, not believing or believing or not believing that God is always watching. All sin comes from unbelief and all sin proceeds from um, an unbelief in what God has declared or, or a rejection of who God is. Um, and so that might include rejecting that, you know, or just saying, well, God doesn't care. God doesn't care what I think about what I do. But I do think it, probably most of the time, based on what Romans 1 says and Romans 2, that man will sin in, while knowing full well that God is watching. That Because the scripture, Paul does say that those who do these things, they know they deserve to die, right? Those who practice wickedness know what the punishment for the sin is. Um, and so this this understanding of of, you know, well, I'm not going to do wrong. Um, you know, if God is watching or not, I think is, is problematic as well. Again, having a deficient anthropology, um, man sins knowing full well what they're doing. They might not know God in the way that Christians do, but they know in their consciences that God is watching, that God requires something that implies that he's watching, he's aware of what's going on. Um, and man might, you know, try to kid themselves and think that, yeah, you know, I'm not, God isn't watching. God doesn't care what I think. So I'm just going to do um, this anyways. I'm just going to suppress that knowledge, right? And, and believe it in my own mind. But at the end of the day, man really knows that God is watching. Man knows that they deserve punishment for their sin uh, based on what God has revealed in creation. And that would include his law as well. Uh, yeah, um, I was, I'm going to... I guess I'll bring up a, a testimony I, I recently heard of someone who uh, started coming to our church and she said that um, she wrecked because uh, she was an alcoholic and uh, she recognized that what she was doing was wrong, but she couldn't stop. So she basically resigned herself to the fact that she was going to hell. Now mm. it's not even that she was necessarily trying to suppress the truth um, that what she was doing was wrong. It's just, she couldn't stop herself. Um, so again, 
it's not enough to say, oh, well, I know there is a God and he's watching, so I'm not going to do that. Sure, that might um, that might be able to stop some people from doing It's wrong. a good deterrent. It is, it is a good deterrent, yeah. but that can't always do it because sin is a slave master and it's enslaved yes. people and they will follow it and we need to be freed. We need to be freed by God. We must be born again if we're going to have any hope of actually um, being free from sin. Yeah, and and uh, I think it's John chapter 3 that talks about this. Man loves the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. They see the light, and they, they would rather stay in the dark in their blindness than go to the light, which would benefit them, obviously. Um, so it, they know that these things are revealing. Light reveals darkness. It reveals things in the dark, I should say. Um, so man would rather stay there. Man would rather hold themselves there knowing that the light is going to reveal who they are. Um, so there's this clear knowledge of God. There's this clear knowledge of, of what God requires. Um, so again, prayer is, is missing those key spiritual anthropomorphic points um, that are necessary to discussing the law of God. So even if you're an atheist, you would want people to live by the moral laws of the Ten Commandments. And even an atheist has to admit that the more people who believe God gave them, and therefore they are not just opinion, the better the world would be. Uh, pause real quick. There, Dan. Yep. So uh, he just said that if you're an atheist, you would want people to live by the Ten Commandments. And that's not true. He's treating the Ten Commandments as a unit there. It's like, oh, well, you would agree that that murder is uh, is bad, so therefore you would want people to live by the Ten Commandments. Um, but that's treating them as a whole. And from an atheist perspective, there's no reason to do that. They could say like, oh, well, I believe murder is wrong, but I don't want the first four, which deal with um, loyalty to God. I don't, or uh, obedience to God. I don't, I don't see that as being valid. Um, so I agree with them in the sense that you do have to recognize that God is the source of these. Cause once you recognize God as a source of these, then it becomes clear why we need to obey all 10. But standing on your own, you can't just be an atheist and like, oh, well, I agree with one. And therefore, like, yes, I think society should follow all 10 of these. Um, and if there is any benefit to it, uh, it's because God has ordered the way, uh, ordered the universe in such a way that there is benefit to it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah, because the first four are clearly in direct relation to God, and an atheist yeah. is naturally going to be like, no, why would I want that? I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, now, I guess maybe on a surface level, I can see where Prager's coming from that, you know, okay, these are objectively the ideal standards for how the human race is to be. So if an atheist is going to be, you know, he would have to come to that conclusion if in fact this is the objective reality, right? But you know, he—I think he's kind of—he's making assumptions about atheists that you and I clearly see as as mm -hmm. problematic because they're blinded, because they hate God, they're suppressing the truth. They don't want those things. Yeah, um, well, they're really just going to take the second table of the law, yeah. and they're obviously—I would hope so—that they would agree that murder is wrong and that you shouldn't be doing that, but they would see it as self-preservation as the furthering of the human race or whatever it might be void of any spiritual um any spiritual merit 
Well, I'd like to point out that the uh, the Ten Commandments say uh, essentially lying is wrong. There's a one of the commandments: right. you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But we would see that as also having uh, relevance to lying, right? Um, and if you're an atheist, the first four commandments have to be a lie because they're about a God that supposedly you don't believe in. So how could it possibly be good um, to have a society based on a lie? Um, now, we don't believe it's a lie at all, but um, it's another issue of like, well, you, you agree that murder is wrong. Therefore, you want all 10 of the commandments. And I, I don't think that that's actually true from an no. atheistic worldview. I don't think that's consistent. Mm -mm, mm, the first four are about worship. You know, and then yeah. that's fleshed out in the Torah, obviously what that means. Um, yeah, an, an atheist is going to be repulsed at that. Why would I want to do that? I don't believe that anyways. Yeah, he's, he's making too many assumptions about atheists. Yep. thousand years, no one has ever come up with a better system than the God-based Ten Commandments for making a better world, and no one ever will. I'm Dennis Prager. Join Prager University. All right, so that concludes the first, the introductory video to the Ten Commandments. Yeah, go ahead, Sean. Uh, I, I'm going to make a couple final comments about that. Yeah, yeah. He said nobody's created a scheme for creating a better world. And <laughs> I, 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 I wonder why. We have, I, we have very different ideas of what constitutes a better world, because as we've seen throughout this entire thing, uh, he seems to be more interested in just how society runs as opposed right. to a better world in the sense that people would come to God and be saved. Um, and that sort mm -hmm. of, that'll, that'll dovetail into my, my second point here. Um, we've been quoting a lot from the Bible, um, mostly from the new Testament, although a little from the old. Um, and I wanted to uh, make sure that we at least quote from the old in case there is somebody who's Jewish, or even if this were to show up in front of Dennis Brager to show that, well, we believe the New Testament is completely um, authoritative. It is the word of God, just like the Old Testament is. A lot of what we're talking about is is explicit in the Old Testament. So uh, I want to quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26 here, which says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Oh, there is a republication of the Ten Commandments. So this would include the Ten Commandments. And it says, cursed be that man who doesn't do all the things in this law. So that person is under a curse. And if you watch Dennis Prager's videos, you would never get any sense that there's a, a seriousness, such a seriousness that you are under a curse if you haven't right. done every single thing in the law. And that's why this is so important. And that's why we're Christians. Because we have seen that we were under the curse of the law and that we didn't keep it as we ought. And therefore, we were worthy of death. But Jesus became a curse for us. Um, the Bible says that uh, cursed, the Old Testament says that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. Um, and Jesus became a curse for us. He hung on the tree, that cross made of wood, bearing the punishment for our sins. Um, so that we are no longer under a curse if we are in him. Uh, he has borne that curse for us. And we, uh, by believing uh, in him, uh, are credited as righteous. We are credited with his righteousness. So now that we stand before God, not having a record of sin, and also having a, a, a positive righteousness accredited to us. And that's why we want everyone who's listening to this um, 
whether they be Jewish or atheist or whatever it might be, to flee to Christ as the only sacrifice for sin that can take away the curse that uh, belongs to us. If uh, Because none of us have kept the law perfectly except for Christ, the God-man. Amen. Yep. And and again, that goes back to the probably the biggest deficiency that we see from Prager. How do you deal with disobeying that law? You've laid it out positively. You've laid it out as the blueprint for society, but you haven't dealt with what happens when we break it. And he, as a, if he's going to be a consistent Jew, would have to admit that that curse exists for those who break it, because as a Jew, he would hold to the Torah, I would assume. Um, but they don't have a way to deal with that. They're not doing temple sacrifices. There's no temple in Jerusalem anymore. They're not going up and uh, doing any blood offerings or atonement or, or offerings for atonement. They're not doing any of that. They're not even doing what the law requires them mm-hmm. to do to take care of sin, at least in the stance of the old covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it is important that we emphasize how that is taken care of from a biblical perspective with Christ coming and revealing the father, living a perfect life and dying on the cross. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly His passive obedience, which was his death, taking care of the judgment that was required of the law and his active obedience, taking care of the positive day to day living out of the Ten Commandments on our behalf. Um, and that's what's accredited to us, those who believe in Christ by faith and faith alone. And that's where Prager's view of the law, I think, takes the most serious, um, is is mostly the, the most serious deficiency, is that it does not deal with the uh, the punishments of the law. It's not a just system. There's no justice in his system for dealing with what happens when you actually break the law. Our system, the biblical system, what we find in Scripture, what God has revealed, can deal with that and deal with it perfectly with complete satisfaction and no works on our part. Um, but he cannot. So we hope that if you're listening and you you don't uh, believe in Christ as your only hope for salvation, you're trusting in your works, you're trusting in the law as your standard. You might be listening, someone might listen to this who who is a Jew and is trusting in the law for their salvation or their good works, turn away from that. You will not be able to keep that law perfectly, and you're under a curse because you have disobeyed it in some way. Um, Only in Christ can we find that salvation and that rest to be free from that curse that's under the law and justly be accepted by God the Father. So we, we ask that you turn from your sins today and believe in Jesus Christ if you do not believe in him. So that begins our introduction into the law. So this will probably be a pretty long series because we're going to go through each of the Ten Commandments. Prager has a video, I think, on each one. Um, and then we'll talk about, you know, he calls them Ten Sayings. Um, and and there's nuances in there we'll have to talk about. But um, this will hopefully be a pretty in-depth series on the law of God um, and really uh, kind of a good discussion on Judaism, too. Um, but with that, thank you for joining us. Uh, we will not have an episode next week. Actually, um, Sean and I will be in on the West Coast. We're going to a wedding and, and doing some other things out there. Um, so we will not have an episode next week. Um, and then the week after that, um, Sean might do something individual. I won't be here. And then hopefully the week after that, in a few weeks, we'll pick up on this series again um, and start the next video from Prager. 
Um, but with that, thank you everyone for joining us today. Have a great weekend and a great Lord's Day tomorrow. God bless.